Hello, and welcome to episode 28 of Jimmy's Extraordinary 80s Playlist. I'm your host and creator, Jimmy, and each week I make a mixtape, combining my love of 80s music with memories of growing up in a San Francisco Bay Area record shop. The 1980s will forever hold a special place in my heart, and I'm excited to share the memories and the music with those who experienced life during the decade, as well as anyone curious to learn what it was like to be there, but weren't. So whether you're a returning or a first-time listener, I invite you to relax and reminisce as I create a themed musical playlist comprised of artists and songs from the greatest decade to live in and live through, the 1980s. Every Christmas during my childhood, there'd always be one present that somehow remained hidden in the very back of the gifts encircling the bottom of our tree. Once our family had finished opening presents and began to relax from the excitement of the event, my father would then point his finger at the tree and remark, wait a minute, I think I see something else behind those branches in the back. This would then prompt me to put down whatever new toy, records, or things I'd received that morning and crawl on my stomach underneath our giant nine-foot-tall tree using my elbows to maneuver my way around. Along the way, my legs and backside would brush against the tree and my mother would call out for me to be careful not to knock off any of her delicate hallmark ornaments or precious glass figurines that for some reason she always chose to hang on the lower branches. As I made my way around toward the gift leaning up against the wall, I could then hear her say, Jim, I don't know why you insist on putting it so far back because it's only a matter of time before your son knocks the whole tree down. To which my father would shrug and respond, honey, that isn't going to happen. Until it actually did on Christmas morning of 1986. What can I say? Growth spurts. The wrapped present would always have the same two labels on it, with one reading to our family from Santa Claus and the second reading to be opened by the nicest child in the family. I remember my mother would then look for me to my sister and say, well, so much for that. I guess it won't get open this year. My father would consistently laugh like it was the funniest thing he'd ever heard, and my sister and I would continuously roll our eyes every time. The present was always revealed to be a new board game for our family to play. Over the years, Santa Claus had given us the game of life, which required you to start adulting by finding a job, getting married, and having children way before my sister and I were ready for any of that. Then there was the Christmas we got the game Go For Broke, which, in order to win, encouraged you to lose a million dollars by gambling it away, playing dice, spinning a roulette wheel, and betting on horses, because in the 80s, you were never too young to start a bad habit. Then there was the time we received the electronic game Simon, which only succeeded in irritating my mother, who said that she couldn't concentrate on repeating the patterns due to the flashing lights and distracting sounds made from the machine, as she called it. Whenever it would buzz at her indicating she'd made a wrong move, she'd throw her hands up in frustration and say to my father, Jim, I really don't see any enjoyment in playing this game. (laughs) Soon after, the batteries always seemed to mysteriously vanish from the Simon game even when they were brand new or had recently been replaced. I remember spending time during Christmas of 1982 playing Trivial Pursuit, which was the hottest game around and was absolutely no fun to play as a kid against adults who could literally prove that they did in fact know everything. 
Even the entertainment questions had nothing to do with movies or music that my sister and I knew. So we just sat at the dining room table looking bewildered or bored while our parents appeared to know everything from Pablo Picasso to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Eventually, we'd play as teams to help even it out and to avoid prolonging the game from taking too long to finish like Monopoly did. Whenever I play Trivial Pursuit, I always remember the exchange my mother and I had as teammates on a question to earn the science and nature wedge, which would give us the win for the game. My sister read the question, what is the human body's largest organ, then gave a knowing glance over to my father as they both nodded. I leaned into my mother and whispered, they know the answer. Um, I think it's the brain, or maybe the heart. Is a brain bigger than a heart? I don't know. What do you think? She then made the pronouncement that while her heart was the largest organ in her body, because it was so full for love for her husband and children, as my father smiled at hearing this, and Sherry and I rolled our eyes again at our mother, that the human body's largest organ was in fact its skin. She was right, and we wound up winning the game. I miss those game nights spent sitting around the dining room table, making memories while discovering how interesting and insightful both of my parents were. I was always learning new details about their lives and the things that they'd experienced and lived through along the way that oftentimes made our time together even more enjoyable than the game that was being played. Last week, I shared my own subjective perspective on songs from artists born in 1958 who made significant impacts in music during the 1980s in my 27th episode titled A Date with 58. That episode, along with many others, are currently available to download and listen to on a variety of platforms, including Apple Music, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, with new episodes available every Wednesday. You can also reach out to me by email at jeetmusicpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. My father used to always say that practice makes progress, and I want to acknowledge the generous support and positive encouragement I continue to receive from listeners. I'd like to give a humble and heartfelt thank you for your support in the progression of this podcast. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please take a moment to hit follow, subscribe, and like. I'd also greatly appreciate any five-star ratings and or reviews, and please tell your friends, family, and anyone in between about Jimmy's extraordinary 80s playlist. Again, thank you for listening, sharing, and supporting as I make mixtapes, talk about 80s music, and the memories associated with them for everyone to enjoy. Our theme this week is I Heart the 80s. When I was growing up, a popular expression I often heard from time to time, mostly used by other kids, was eat your heart out. This phrase was usually said by someone boasting about their accomplishments in an attempt to encourage jealousy from others. I distinctly remember hearing my friend David taunt me with it after school once at Le Mans Speedway Arcade while bragging about taking the high score on Donkey Kong. Eat your heart out, Jimmy, he sneered at me as I looked at his initials next to the number one spot on the game screen. It worked, though, because I promptly walked over to the change machine and exchanged a $5 bill for 20 quarters and spent about half of them to secure the first, second, and third high score rankings while he watched in disbelief. There, I said, eat your heart out. I wasn't exactly sure what it meant or why I'd said it, but it did feel good to tell him off as I strode away from the machine thinking, I showed him. For as long as I can remember, I can recall hearing numerous expressions, phrases, and idioms using the heart to describe a person's emotions. 
These include saying a person has a big heart or a heart of gold to convey that they're thought of as kind or loving, or using the expression, my heart goes out to you to imply empathy toward a sad situation or another individual going through a rough time. Someone might use the phrase, cross my heart to ensure honesty or trust, while a person who easily shows their emotions is said to wear their heart on their sleeve. Throughout time, the heart has been used in literature, song, and pop culture to figuratively represent everything from the elation and excitement associated with falling in love to the sorrow and pain involved with it falling apart. The heart is the center of our strongest emotions and tends to beat faster when we experience things like shock, fear, grief, or jealousy. When we're poised, relaxed, and confident, our hearts regulate more of a steady beat in response to being happy or content. At some point in life, each of us are guaranteed to experience a wave of emotions that might hurt our heart, but there are also those that are designed to heal it. A person who is well-intentioned is said to have their heart in the right place, which makes for a smoother navigation when getting to the heart of the matter. Our playlist includes songs that have the word heart in their titles, sung by artists exploring themes from the heartwarming to the heartbreaking. So from my heart to yours, let's always remain young at heart while our hearts skip a beat as we make a mixtape. I've unwrapped another 60-minute blank Maxell audio cassette tape and placed it into the left side of the dual cassette tape player of my stereo system. I've pressed down the pause, play, and record buttons, and I'm ready to make another memorable mixtape filled with extraordinary 80s music. Out of respect for the copyright and creative process by the artists involved in all songs mentioned in the podcast, no music clips will be included. Instead, I'll use my commentary about the songs and encourage the listener to support music sites by authentically acquiring access to them. I'm ready to start site A of the mixtape and have the first track ready, so I'll unpause the cassette and begin our playlist. Track 1 was released in June of 1983 and peaked at number 1 for four weeks on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Bonnie Tyler, and the song is Total Eclipse of the Heart. When MTV officially launched on August 1st, 1981, the channel and its minimal roster of music videos were not immediately an overnight success. This was partially due to the inaccessibility of the channel for many households that didn't yet have cable installed, as well as the hesitation for many major record labels to invest money in their artists making music videos. At the time of its premiere, the channel had roughly 200 music videos in its library and found it necessary to rotate them repeatedly in order to consistently fill 24 hours of programming. The majority of videos that were featured had also been filmed prior to the channel's launch, and they displayed a minimalistic aesthetic with some simply being performance clips and others looking like they were uninspired vanity pieces with no or a low budget. The arrival of the second British invasion was already underway when MTV launched, and many of its artists were able to gain significant exposure in America for their music and for themselves by having their videos air on the channel. Throughout 1982, singers and bands like The Human League, A Flock of Seagulls, and Duran Duran began to shift the focus of music videos from featuring ill-conceived concepts and directionless production into a more cohesive result. 
Duran Duran alone took the medium and elevated it into a stylized art form by depicting luxurious lifestyles, lavish locations, and opulent landscapes throughout the world to emphasize the emotions behind their song's lyrics. Suddenly, MTV's reliable roster of videos received an overhaul as the band stormed the channel with videos of stylish escapism, including Hungry Like the Wolf, Save a Prayer, and Rio. Plus, while gallivanting about on yachts or draped in the finest menswear, they were also easy on the eyes, which appealed to and fulfilled MTV's target demographic of teenagers to young adults. Other musicians began to take notice, and record companies once reluctant to finance the costs associated with making music videos reached deep into their pockets and produced the funds necessary. Less than a year later, music videos were impacting pop culture and revolutionizing the way people dressed, danced, and behaved based on the images they'd seen from their favorite artists. 1983 is often credited as the year that MTV really came to its own as a music video channel because of the artistry displayed in the rotation of music videos that it aired, including those from Culture Club and the Eurythmics. That year also saw Michael Jackson exceed all expectations when he elevated the music video format yet again with Thriller, Beat It, and Billie Jean. Suddenly, musicians were engaged and involved in storyboarding their videos because they saw how influential they could be at appealing to new audiences, as well as they could also be seen as romantic, charming, relatable, funny, charismatic, and interesting to viewers who now had a visual image to associate with their song. At the start of 1983, Welsh singer Bonnie Tyler found herself facing professional challenges in finding an audience for her sound and her songs. Though she'd been writing and recording music since the mid-70s, it had been over five years since her biggest hit, It's a Heartache, had been released. After two albums, In Between failed to generate any interest, she found a fresh start with a new record label and began working with acclaimed composer, songwriter, and producer Jim Steinman, who at the time was responsible for producing one of the best-selling albums of all time, Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell. Jim Steinman had originally envisioned the power ballad Total Eclipse of the Heart as a love song, some from the perspective of vampires, that he'd planned to use in a musical adaptation of the film Nosferatu. When the project went nowhere, he decided to have Bonnie Tyler record the song because he felt that the power and the prowess behind her vocals could effectively convey the conflict and complexity of the song's lyrics. This proved correct because no other artist, whether someone singing it as a cover or as a person singing at karaoke, can seamlessly demonstrate the control of vulnerability in the verses, only to then confidently catapult the chorus into the rafters the way that Bonnie Tyler does. There's theatrics, there's dramatic tension, there's caterwauling, and there's longing in her vocals as she vamps it up using the richness and the rasp of her husky tone. The song benefits from excellent writing and musical production right from the opening piano keys that delicately mark the tone as we fade in on a woman who's enveloped by and more than exasperated from love. A Total Eclipse describes a short period of time where the sun becomes briefly obscured within complete darkness in the middle of the day. By replacing the sun with a heart, it evokes the impression of an unexpected loss of love and the dark emptiness of sadness that can surround and engulf a person. I think it's poignant how the song uses the effect of an eclipse looming as a reminder of the love lost in the lyric, your love is like a shadow on me all of the time. 
while also expressing an awareness of the reality of where things stand. Bonnie Tyler has a grit in her voice and an unrelenting grasp on the verses as they slowly build with her singing, and I need you now tonight, and I need you more than ever, and if you'll only hold me tight, we'll be holding on forever, and we'll only be making it right, cause we'll never be wrong. Then she shifts to anguish and despair as they take hold and she sends the song soaring into the stratosphere while singing, Together we can take it to the end of the line. Your love is like a shadow on me all of the time. I don't know what to do and I'm always in the dark. We're living in a powder keg and giving off sparks. I really need you tonight. Forever's gonna start tonight. Forever's gonna start tonight. The passion and the conviction with which she sang those lyrics is then almost immediately followed by the vulnerability of heartbreak in her voice as she guides the song back down to earth in the verses. Once upon a time I was falling in love, but now I'm only falling apart. There's nothing I can do. A total eclipse of the heart. Once upon a time there was light in my life, but now there's only love in the dark. Nothing I can say, a total eclipse of the heart. As the song fades out, we're left with the melancholy refrain of Turn around, bright eyes, turn around echoing her longing for what possibly once was, but now will never again be. Now, because it was the early 80s and every artist was vying for attention with their music videos, the team supporting Total Eclipse of the Heart understood that the song demanded a music video that matched the intensity of the song itself. And man, did they deliver. The video has it all. Floating curtains, feathered hair, (laughs) glowing eyes, choir boys, footballers, fencing, ninjas, gymnasts, doves, shirtless men, doors opening on their own, preening into a mirror, running in slow motion, and it's all shot using a hazy, almost dreamlike camera lens. From what I can tell, the storyline revolves around a boys boarding school where Bonnie Tyler is the headmistress who's fighting against some serious attraction to her male student bodies, bodies. Just like the song, the video has theatrics, dramatic tension, caterwauling, and forlorn looks of longing as she vamps it up while caught in the battle between desire and decorum. The video doesn't make sense now, just as it didn't 40 years ago, but I'd really encourage anyone who hasn't seen it to watch it and resist wishing that school had been half as enticing and as exciting as the one in the video. As Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler fades out, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the next track. Track 2 was released in October of 1980 and peaked at number 5 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Bruce Springsteen, and the song is Hungry Heart. When Bruce Springsteen began what would become his legendary career in rock and roll music, he was often referred to as the next Bob Dylan. 
During the 60s, Bob Dylan wrote and recorded several anthems that incorporated a range of political, literary, philosophical, and social influences into his celebrated songs, such as Blowing in the Wind, Like a Rolling Stone, and The Times They Are a Change In. Initially, due to the construct of Springsteen's poetic lyrics and folk rock musical sound, his record label sought to market him and his music toward Dylan's established fan base during the 70s, a comparison Springsteen was not fond of. This wasn't because he didn't appreciate or admire the magnitude of being likened to one of the greatest songwriters of all time, but more so because he was focused on foraging his own path as a genuine singer, songwriter, and musician. He wasn't attempting to be or interested in becoming the next anyone else when he already knew who he was and just let his talent, songwriting skills, and musical composition speak for him. This year marks half a century since Bruce Springsteen changed the landscape of rock and roll with the release of not one, but two separate albums. In January of 1973, he released his debut album, Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey. And in November came the follow-up called The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle. Incidentally, in May of that year, I was also born. Though his first two albums were well-received critically, they didn't make much of an impact with audiences or commercially. Undeterred, Springsteen continued to work on his craft, writing songs that reflected the socially conscious times while giving a voice to those who'd been drowned out or defeated. Two years later, he catapulted to worldwide fame when his breakthrough album, Born to Run, was released in 1975. The album garnered widespread mainstream and critical acclaim for presenting storied songs about defeat, loss, escape, and betrayal and featured many of his most well-known and beloved tracks, including the title song, Thunder Road, She's the One, Jungle Land, and 10th Avenue Freeze Out. A few years later, his follow-up album, Darkness on the Edge of Town, was praised for its mature themes, its musical production, and poetic lyricism in its songwriting. During the latter part of the 70s, Springsteen also saw songs that he wrote become hits for other artists, including Fire by the Pointer Sisters, because the Night by Patti Smith, and Blinded by the Light by Manfred Mann, which became a number one hit. With the dawn of a new decade right around the corner, many fans, critics, and those in the music world were all curious to see what Bruce Springsteen would do next. At the start of the greatest decade to live in and live through, he released his most ambitious recording to date, a double album called The River. The songs on the album use upbeat instrumentation and impassioned vocals to cover many themes ranging from independence and despair to alienation and disillusionment. Springsteen puts himself into the shoes of the characters he sings about in such a personal and profound way while sharing the stories behind their broken dreams, deepest fears, and everyday struggles in life. The album also explores many ideas surrounding the subject of love, including familial bonds, romantic relationships, and one's own self-worth. The lead single from the album was the jangly, up-tempo song, Hungry Heart, which he originally wrote for the Ramones, but instead decided to keep for himself. The song resulted in his first ever top 10 single on the US Hot 100 singles chart, as well as The River becoming his first ever number one album on the top albums chart. Hungry Heart juxtaposes one man's wanderlust against his desire for feeling satisfaction and being stable. The song opens with the narrator using a river as a metaphor to suggest his actions behind abandoning his family were shaped by nature. The verses are, Got a wife and kids in Baltimore, Jack. I went out for a ride and I never went back. 
Like a river that don't know where it's flowing, I took a wrong turn and I just kept going. The enthusiastically upbeat melody of drums, piano, mixed with guitar and saxophone, all create a swinging, bluesy sound despite the lyrics hardly being uplifting. The song's narrator explores the idea that his heart never has been fully satisfied, regardless of how he's attempted to fill it, and it's that hunger that keeps him searching for something, or someone new, something or someone better, or just anything more fulfilling than what he's had before. The sing-along chorus with its catchy hooks reminds us that no one's heart is ever really full because of the longing hunger that will never be satiated no matter what or how we use to try to feel it. Everybody's got a hungry heart. Everybody's got a hungry heart. Lay down your money and you play your part. Everybody's got a hungry heart. I've always interpreted the lyric, lay down your money and you play your part, as the gamble of risking what you already have and the willingness to lose it for something that itself may not be any different. Since he put his voice to vinyl over 50 years ago, Bruce Springsteen has earned recognition and respect from his peers and audiences worldwide as a musician by continually developing his sound and meticulously creating songs that spoke directly to and about the human condition. His music and his humanity established him as a beacon for the everyman, the underdogs, the marginalized, the alienated, the unseen, the voiceless, and the powerless, and they've succeeded at setting him apart from every other musician around. As Hungry Heart by Bruce Springsteen fades out, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the next track. Track 3 was released in May of 1988 and peaked at number 64 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are Eurythmics, and the song is You Have Placed a Chill in My Heart. Between 1981 and 1989, British pop duo Eurythmics released eight different albums combining the otherworldly vocals of Annie Lennox with the masterful music production of Dave Stewart. Together, they composed and crafted seven studio albums of original material and one soundtrack created entirely for the film 1984. Like the majority of Americans, I first discovered them by seeing Annie Lennox in a close-cropped, bright orange crew-cut hairstyle and tailored business suit appearing next to the beguiling Dave Stewart in the video for Sweet Dreams on MTV. I was instantly enchanted by everything about them, including their instrumentation, the sounds, her vocals, the production, and their look, and I wanted to know and hear more. As a result of the second British invasion of the early to mid-80s, the duo gained widespread exposure through MTV and on American radio, resulting in mainstream success for their singles Sweet Dreams Are Made of This, Here Comes the Rain Again, and Would I Lie to You, among many others. While I gobbled up every single that they put out during the decade and sang along with songs such as Who's that girl running around with you? Tell me. <laughs> Or, love is a stranger in an open car To tempt you in and drive you far away And then the music would go Boom, 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 boom. Oh! <laughs> and of course, sisters are doing it for themselves Standing on their own two feet and ringing on their own bells. 
I've always felt that their collective artistry and creative ingenuity is best reflected, though, with their albums. Throughout the 80s, Eurythmics consistently challenged themselves and their audiences to experience unexplored areas of what music could be by using innovative experimentation, sophisticated instrumentation, and polished production in the construction of their songs and compositions. These are prominent features displayed on albums throughout their career, beginning with their debut, In the Garden, onto their breakthrough records, Sweet Dreams and Touch, and their more commercially successful albums, Be Yourself Tonight and Revenge. If you were to ask me to name my favorite album by them, I'd tell you that it's their 1987 release, Savage. Now, if you were to ask others to name their least favorite Eurythmics album, many will also claim it's Savage. Which, of course, is incorrect, because there's no such thing as a least favorite Eurythmics album. When Savage was released in November of 1987, it was a pretty polarizing record for fans and critics, with those who voiced their appreciation of the duo exploring a different creative direction, and others who trashed it, saying it didn't make any sense and lacked the cohesion of their previous records. I believe that those who wrote off the album, and to an extent the craftsmanship that Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart put into it, simply chose not to delve any deeper than a surface listen before forming an opinion on it. It's also possible that listeners who went into Savage were looking for songs like Sweet Dreams and Would I Lie to You, and that they came away completely bewildered by what they heard when side one, track one began with the incredibly striking song, Beethoven, I Love to Listen To. I got the album a few days prior to Thanksgiving and remember sitting up in my room, playing it on repeat, just listening and loving the songs, which were so different from anything that was out at the time and anything that the Eurythmics had done before. If anything, the album left me feeling intrigued at the advanced sounds, synths, and computerized beats blended with the vocals and the song lyrics rather than indifferent toward them. Uninterested in repeating previous templates for success, they decided to abandon the conventional pop rock sound that they'd perfected on previous albums and push past perceptions by making music unlike anything that was being done. Savage is filled with infectious grooves, meticulous melodies, funk-filled beats, and electro-pop rhythms designed to get under your skin. Songs like Put the Blame on Me, I've Got a Lover, Back in Japan, Do You Want to Break Up, I Need You, Shame and the title track all celebrate being defiant in the face of adversity. The songs pierce through the heart while addressing our primitive nature, the ugliness within that we keep hidden, and our perpetual desire for something to fill our spirits and souls. The album is clear, it's concise, and it's cohesive and was ahead of its time back then with its lyricism and production. It's hard to believe that it was ever considered to be a disappointment by critics and fans even the casual ones. The song I Need a Man was the lead single released in the United States to promote the album, but other than a few times on the radio and seeing the video a couple of times on night tracks, it came and went without any impact. It's too bad, really, because Annie Lennox's vocals are incredibly powerful and the music supporting her is stellar. The follow-up single was You Have Placed a Chill in My Heart, which is sung with ferocious indignation, as only Annie Lennox can. She is one of the greatest vocalists that I've ever heard, and I'm continuously moved by the soulful passion she pours into her phrasing, tone, breathing, and expression of lyrics. The song's an unapologetic lament from the perspective of a woman through accepting limitations projected onto her. During the song, she sings, 
I'll be the figure of your disgrace, a crisscross pattern upon your face, a woman's just too tired to think about the dirty old dishes in the kitchen sink. The song glides from icy indignation to vulnerable fragility and then surges into jubilation, all magnificently articulated in the vocals as she removes the protective sheath over her heart to reveal how the profound devastation of heartbreak can evolve into a joyous rebirth. You Have Placed a Chill in My Heart is supported by an energetic drum machine and synth arrangements, but it's really the vocals that carry the song, especially when she punctuates each word in the lyric, don't cut me down when I'm talking to you, because I'm much too tall to feel that small. Savage, indeed. As you have placed a chill in my heart by Eurythmics fades out, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the next track. Track 4 was released in April of 1983 and peaked at number 9 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Rick Springfield, and the song is Affair of the Heart. During the summer of 1981, it was nearly impossible to turn on the radio without hearing Rick Springfield's monster hit song, Jesse's Girl, being played once, or sometimes twice, or even three times within the hour. Months later, when MTV launched, the song's music video was played heavily with him emoting dejectedly at the camera while strumming his guitar and asking, Why can't I find a woman like that? Though MTV and the radio were responsible for introducing me to Rick Springfield when I was a kid, I really have to credit my older sister Sherry for giving me an appreciation for him as an artist and for his music. Before I turned 10 years old, I knew all of the lyrics to many of his songs, including Love Is Alright Tonight, I've Done Everything For You, Don't Talk To Strangers, and What Kind Of Fool Am I, after borrowing all of her albums. Just be careful not to scratch them, she'd always say whenever I'd ask if I could listen to her records. I distinctly recall one day watching the Cannonball Run on HBO while sitting on our couch after school when Sherry came home into the house carrying her book bag, purse, and car keys. I also noticed that she was holding a plastic bag that had the outline of a record album in it. As if sensing my curiosity, she threw her stuff down on the couch and sat alongside me and said, look at this, while reaching into the bag and removing Rick Springfield's new album called Living in Oz. We then both sat in silence for what felt like forever as we stared at the album's cover photo with his chiseled face, brooding dark eyes, and slick back hair staring right back at us. I turned off the TV and she put the album on the stereo and then we squealed with delight while dancing around together in the living room and trying to sing along to a bunch of brand new songs. I remember the album opened with the song Human Touch, which instantly became my favorite due to the pounding percussion, the synth, and the driving guitar as well as the saxophone. I asked her if we could play it again when it was finishing, and she said sure, and she picked up the needle and we listened to it again, and then we let the album play through. Little did I know, though, that the rest of the album would also present more tracks featuring incredible music production with impressive guitar solos and pulsating drum, drum rhythms on songs like Allison, Tiger by the Tail, and the title song. The lead single released to promote the album was the rocker Affair of the Heart, which has an amazing blend of guitar, bass, keyboard, and drums that really gives the song a sound and a sense of urgency. The first minute is just the instruments working in unison, making incredible sounds together, which sounds like the opening of a sci-fi movie. It's mysterious and dark and ominous, 
okay, maybe an early 80s sci-fi movie, but it, it has that feeling. I've always thought that. The song is sung from the perspective of a man who's equally just as stimulated by the emotional attraction to his lover as he is to her physical connection with him. Rick Springfield sings the verses with such controlled cadence while punctuating each lyric in the song. The song opens with the lyrics, Heart in my mouth, pulse in my head, mercury rising into the red, the smell of your skin can light up all the fires in me. Hungry to touch, I'm eager to please, out of control and I hand you the keys, every night I am burning to make love to you. The song has clever lyrics, and it uses the refrain of It's an affair of the heart during the chorus to convey that there's real substance behind the superficial. Granted, when I was 10, a lot of the song's lyrics and the meaning behind them went over my head. I just knew that it was an amazing song to rock out to and dance around with and and listen to. It was really a fantastic song. Months later, when my sister graduated high school and became engaged to Anthony, she then prepared to move out of our house and into a place of their own. I remember she spent the summer packing up her things, including all her clothes, her books, the bedroom furniture, and everything else that was hers, and it was all loaded into a U-Haul truck that our father then drove 20 miles south from our home to help them unload at their new apartment. In the time leading up to her leaving, she had come into my bedroom one day with a stack of her record albums and some tapes and asked me if I wanted to keep them since she and Anthony were combining their records and they had duplicates. Because I was a greedy kid (laughs) who'd never say no to free records, I wound up taking them all. But also because there was, you know, something about that they belonged to my sister and it was a part of her that I could keep at home with me now that she'd be leaving and starting a new life on her own. I remember she left them on my desk and then went back to finish packing up her room while I went and looked through the records. I picked up the stack and then sat back on my bed with them. And as I moved each album aside to see the ones that were left, I realized there were a lot that I didn't have. It started with Foreigner's number four, or Foreigner four, if you will, on top. And then there were albums by Queen, Cheap Trick, and Elton John. And after moving aside my newly acquired copy of Carol King's Tapestry from her, there were Rick Springfield's albums, <laughs> Working Class Dog, Success Hasn't Spoiled Me Yet, and Living in Oz, which made me smile. As Affair of the Heart by Rick Springfield fades out, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the last track on side A. Track 5 was released in October of 1985 and peaked at number 2 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are Survivor, and the song is Burning Heart. In the 1980s, the geopolitical tensions between the United States and the then-Soviet Union kept the fear of potential nuclear war breaking out at any time on the forefront of many Americans' minds. This was during a time when the Cold War had been going on for nearly four decades. The period from roughly 1979 to 1987 saw a sharp increase in tensions and hostility between the two superpowers and involved events such as the U.S.-led boycott of the 1980 Summer Olympics in Moscow, as well as the retaliatory Soviet boycott against the U.S. at the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. There was plenty of rhetoric, dialogue, and discourse between the governments while trying to ease the emotional strain of the potential impact of war. 
the threat of possible desecration and destruction from Soviet missiles and nuclear weapons were also very real concerns that affected many Americans, and our government responded at the time with a strategic defense initiative, nicknamed Star Wars, which was set up within the U.S. Department of Defense. This was a proposed missile defense system intended to protect the United States from any attack by ballistic strategic nuclear weapons. At the time, President Reagan called upon American scientists and engineers to create and develop a program that would render nuclear weapons obsolete. While championing lauding the program as a success, his administration simultaneously also approved and enacted severe budgetary cuts that limited the research and development that could be done to complete the program. Prior to the end of the decade, the Cold War ended without any nuclear weapon exchange between the former Soviet Union and the United States, but it didn't prevent numerous artists from creating films, television, literature, artwork, and music providing their commentary on the subject. When I was 12 years old, my father took me to the festival cinema during Thanksgiving weekend to see Rocky IV. I remember the theater was packed with people, and this was way before stadium-style seating, fancy cup holders, or reclining seats. So if someone tall sat in the seat directly in front of you, all you were going to see was the back of their head. Though I'd never been to a boxing match, the intensity of the film's fight scenes and the enthusiasm of the audience made it feel like I was really at one. I remember during the final bout between Rocky Balboa and Ivan Drago, that I watched as the audience yelled boo when Drago was on the screen, and then they provided cheers and chants of Rocky, Rocky, when it looked like he was down for the count. As Rocky rebounded and began to get the upper hand on Drago, I realized that they weren't really characters, but more so caricatures representing the USA versus the USSR. When Rocky begins to come back strong, throwing and landing punches that repeatedly weaken Drago, the crowd in the theater erupted in applause and cheers, signaling that America could celebrate a hopeful but fictional victory in the comfort and companionship of a darkened movie theater, while outside real-life tensions were still high and the outcome uncertain. In 1983, Chicago-based rock band Survivor were commissioned by actor Sylvester Stallone to write a song that could be used as a theme for Rocky III. The band accepted that challenge and went on to write the inspirational anthem, Eye of the Tiger. Naturally, when Rocky III was a major hit at the box office, the studio began working on the next film in the series. Rather than reuse the same song as before, Stallone sent the script for the movie to the band and asked them to write another song. After reading the script, bandmates Jim Peterick and Frankie Sullivan wrote and produced the song Burning Heart. The song's lyrics chronicle the conflict between the communist East versus the capitalist West as reflected in the film. The verses take on both, and they depict the battle, which is more than just about two fighters in a boxing ring and expanded out to incorporate the battle between the ideologies of two rival nations. It begins with, two worlds collide, rival nations. It's a primitive clash venting years of frustrations. Not only did Rocky have to once again prove himself as a champion in the ring, but this time around everything was much more amplified because he represented America. The song goes on to ask, is it East versus West or man against man? With America under threat and seeking to achieve victory by overcoming a formidable enemy, he'd have to use his tenacity, all his strength, and his perseverance to reach down deep with every fiber of his being into the pit of his soul in order to overcome almost insurmountable odds and obstacles that were challenging him. 
This is evident in the verses. In the warrior's code, there's no surrender. Though his body says stop, his spirit cries never. Burning Heart is a great song that works as a motivational companion to Eye of the Tiger because both songs share themes of reminding yourself to keep getting back up, to keep moving forward, and though the fight may be in front of you, it's just as much within you. Whether it's about fighting back mentally, physically, or metaphorically, these songs inspire us to muster up that inner strength from deep down within in order to overcome adversity without allowing it to change who we are at our core. In the darkest night, rising like a spire, in the burning heart, the unmistakable fire. As Burning Heart by Survivor fades out, it will also end Site A, so I'll press stop on the cassette player and eject the tape. To recap, we open Site A with Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler, followed by Hungry Heart by Bruce Springsteen. Next was You Have Placed a Chill in My Heart by Eurythmics, then Affair of the Heart by Rick Springfield, and we ended Site A with Burning Heart by Survivor. We're halfway there! Now I'll flip the tape over and press the pause, play, and record buttons and prepare to start Site B. I have the first track ready, so I'll unpause the cassette and continue our playlist with the next song. Track 1 was released in April of 1988 and peaked at number 3 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are Daryl Hall and John Oates, and the song is Everything Your Heart Desires. My introduction to the music of Daryl Hall and John Oates came from hearing their 1980 album called Voices. What I loved about hearing that album at such a young age was just how masterfully their songs blended catchy melodies with sing-along choruses and recognizable hooks. I also enjoyed hearing songs like You Make My Dreams, Kiss on My List, Every Time You Go Away, as well as their cover of the Righteous Brothers' You've Lost That Loving Feeling. The album is solid from start to finish, and it really demonstrates how together they seamlessly blended rock with soul and pop to create their own successful signature sound. The album also led to Hall & Oates dominating the radio airwaves, the music channels, and the charts from the beginning to about the middle of the decade. Their singles and their albums, between the years of 1980 and 1985, it was nearly impossible not to hear Daryl Hall's rich tenor, coupled with John Oates' skillful guitar on songs like Private Eyes, Man Eater, I Can't Go For That, one-on-one, adult education, say it isn't so, and out of touch. The year 1985 also saw the duo participate in the recording of USA for Africa's charitable single We Are the World, as well as play a set at the Live Aid concert in Philadelphia. Then, after performing together for nearly 15 years and releasing an album every year between 1972 and 1984, Holland Oates took a well-earned and much-needed break away from making music to work on side projects. This included Daryl Hall releasing his second solo album and performing at the very first Farm Aid concert, while John Oates contributed background vocals and songwriting credits to other artists' albums. By the time the duo reunited to record and release music for their next album called Ooh Yeah in 1988, four years had gone by since their last album was recorded, and tastes and trends in music had changed significantly. Most notably, the blue-eyed soul and rock-pop sound that they were known for struggled to find a place on the airwaves and on the music video channels due to the explosion of rap, hip-hop, dance-pop, and hair metal-dominating music. 
The duo did manage to see success with the album earning platinum status, and its lead single, Everything Your Heart Desires, peaked at number three. It also became their last single to make it into the top 10 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles chart. Everything Your Heart Desires is a mid-tempo synth-pop song that incorporates a slick music production using driving drum beats, rhythmic bass, and John Oates' impressive guitar grooves. What I really love, though, is Daryl Hall seamlessly being able to glide in and out using his tenor vocal to ring out every ounce of passion in the song's lyrics. He sings the song from the perspective of a man bemused by a woman who appears to have it all in their relationship, but yet she's left unfulfilled. The song opens with the lyrics, You say you can't stand to be tied so close to a lover. Yeah, you feel like a prisoner and you want to find someone who will let you out. Can't you see the heartbeat that you know so well is better than some strange one you're looking for? Say, you never know, that strange one just might be me. Only Daryl Hall could get away with admonishing someone for their selfish or greedy nature in such a romantically soulful way. He's reminding her to appreciate what she does have in their relationship rather than to keep looking for a reason to run or contemplate whether the grass really could be greener on the other side. He tells her, can't you see? You have everything your heart desires. So why you want more? If you have everything your heart desired, would you still want more? I love how the song addresses the restlessness and persistent pangs of emotion that can sometimes plague a person to continually search for wanting more than what they have when what they already have is actually sufficient enough. There's so many reasons Daryl Hall and John Oates are recognized as the biggest and best selling musical duo of all time. And it can be heard over and over again when any time that you listen to their songs. As Everything Your Heart Desires by Daryl Hall and John Oates fades out, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the next track. Track 2 was released in April of 1985 and peaked at number 8 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Sting, and the song is Fortress Around Your Heart. Within a year of graduation from college, I started receiving several invitations and save the date notices by mail, announcing the upcoming weddings of friends of mine from school. Some were expected, like my friends Aaron and Mila, who when I first met them in an intro to art class, had already been dating for nearly two years and planned to get married after college. Then there were my friends Ryan and Bridget, who to me seemed like more of a casual couple than a committed one, so it was a surprise to learn that not only had they continued dating after school ended, but that they were then getting married. By the end of the 90s, I'd attended no fewer than 12 different friends' weddings, including being a part of the wedding party in four of them. I'd witnessed many of my friends exchanging vows, pledging their affection and love for one another, and how entering into marriage would strengthen the bond between them. I'd been fitted for formal wear, taken time off of work to travel by car or plane all over the United States, witnessed some of the most garish colors, fabrics, and materials used for bridesmaids' dresses, encountered elaborate ceremonies involving outlandish floral arrangements, poetic readings, doves, and string quartets, as well as more simplified ones where the focus was just on the pair exchanging vows. I've gorged myself on the wedding reception buffet and also found myself still hungry after several courses of a sit-down dinner. I've danced to YMCA, Celebration, and yes, even the Macarena, which is not one of my proudest moments, 
but at the time it was inescapable, and you know I had those moves down. Toward the end of the decade, I remember attending my friend Laura's wedding, which originally was going to be in August of 2000, but she moved it ahead a year earlier because of irrational fears over the world ending due to Y2K. At the wedding reception, I found myself seated for dinner at a table with several other friends of ours from college, including Ryan and Bridget, who had recently celebrated their fourth wedding anniversary and were five months pregnant with their first child. After catching up with them and a few others at the table, I recognized Mila coming over, even though I hadn't seen her in years. As we hugged and commented on how well each other looked and what we were doing with our lives, I realized her husband Aaron wasn't there and that she wasn't wearing her wedding ring. Even though my instincts said not to ask, I blurted out, Is Aaron here? Who? No, we divorced a long time ago, she replied. Oh, I said, unsure if I should sympathize or smile in response to the news. Since back then, social media wasn't a way to keep tabs on every movement and every moment everyone made in their lives, I realized just how much things had changed for friendships that I'd once known but had fallen away from. Mila then went on to tell me how they weren't right for each other and possibly never had been, and how they'd grown apart after less than two years of marriage. Two years too long, she said while shrugging her shoulders. It just wasn't for us. We fought all the time and over everything. Everything was a war. It was a battle. I don't know what he's doing now and I really don't care. Oh, I said again, aware that my facial expression definitely reflected the surprised awkwardness of the situation. Though there are many songs that capture the emotions associated with finding and falling in love, there are also plenty that describe what can happen when a couple goes from being in love to being at war. Not necessarily a physical war, but more of an emotional or psychological one that uses its lyrics to describe how each party fights to disarm and destroy the other while the battle rages on until one prevails proclaiming their side the victor. When I first heard the song Fortress Around Your Heart by Sting, I didn't really have a clue what he was singing about. I just knew that I enjoyed the concentrated rhythm from the instrumentation that built up during the verses before the song's catchy sing-along chorus kicked in. Eventually, after several repeated listenings and reading the liner notes, I realized that he wasn't singing about the effects of returning from an actual war, but instead about his introspection when viewing the ruins of his relationship. The song is sung from the perspective of a man taking an unvarnished look at his actions and how they've contributed to the disconnect between he and his lover. Sting uses intelligent lyricism and impassioned vocals portraying the destruction within his relationship as a city besieged by battle in the opening lyrics, under the ruins of a walled city, crumbling towers and beams of yellow light, no flags of truce, no cries of pity, the siege guns had been pounding through the night. It took a day to build the city. We walked through its streets in the afternoon. As I returned across the fields I'd known, I recognized the walls that I once made. Had to stop in my tracks for fear of walking on the mines I'd laid. The lyrics, no flags of truce, no cries of pity, indicate the unwillingness of either side to compromise, let alone communicate with the other. While the lyric, it took a day to build the city, suggests that, though their love for each other was instantaneous, it was unable to sustain its structure due to the damage done. It's poignant to use landmines to refer to the accusations, insensitive tones, and hurtful words 
used toward the woman he loved because it demonstrates an understanding of how the slightest remark or action can possibly trigger the reminder of painful feelings within her. This leads to the chorus, and if I've built this fortress around your heart, encircled you in trenches and barbed wire, then let me build a bridge, for I cannot fill the chasm, and let me set the battlements on fire. Her heart is guarded, and an emotional blockade has formed around her, where he isn't permitted to enter. What started out as loving and tender had become withdrawn and antagonistic, with the need to protect themselves from one another, erecting psychological barriers as a defense built from hurt caused, whether intentionally or indirectly. He's experienced the effects caused when love, trust, and companionship are replaced with pride, anger, and resentment. And he's faced with the realization that he's been focused on fighting for a win rather than a resolution. The man in the song is seeking to move forward from being mired in the blame and the breakdown of the relationship and is attempting to mend fences. He's well aware of the difficulty of ever trying to fill the deep chasm she surrounded her heart with, but instead offers that the two of them can build a bridge, possibly with willingness and if the interest and the action is within her. He's hopeful that they'll survive the battle without losing one another to the war. As Fortress Around Your Heart by Sting fades out, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the next track. Track 3 was released in February of 1983 and peaked at number 10 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Brian Adams, and the song is Straight From The Heart. Growing up, I was more of a night owl than an early riser, and I'd always try to sleep in as long as possible on school days before my mother would eventually appear in my room threatening to yank me out of my bed if I didn't get up and get ready. What's funny is that on the weekends, I never had any trouble getting up and getting my day started, even with just a few hours of sleep the night before. In the 80s, I'd spend most Friday evenings attempting to stay up and watch all six hours of music videos on night tracks, only to end up falling asleep sometime after midnight on our living room couch. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and drag myself upstairs and then go to bed, only to then wake up around 6 o'clock a.m., all relaxed and refreshed, and ready to rush back downstairs to watch Saturday morning cartoons. I'd grab the biggest bowl I could find, which was usually one of my mother's mixing bowls, and fill it up with cereal while spending the next several hours flipping through the channels between the three major networks, NBC, CBS, and ABC, watching everything from the Smurfs, Snorks, Shirt Tales, Muppet Babies, Dungeons and Dragons, Care Bears, Mr. T, G.I. Joe, Inspector Gadget, Alvin and the Chipmunks, and Scooby-Doo, also while singing along with the various educational jingles on Schoolhouse Rock. At 11 a.m., the cartoons would stop, and then I'd watch the ABC Weekend Special, which was a 30-minute anthology series that featured animated and live-action stories. Since they could be hit or miss, the story usually determined if I'd take that time to get out of my PJs, shower, and get dressed, or if I'd wait till later on. At 11.30, I was ready to turn our living room into a dance floor when American Bandstand and then Soul Train came on. I remember watching an episode of American Bandstand that inspired me to make a mixtape of music by just Laura Branigan and Brian Adams after seeing them both perform on the same episode. 
Laura Branigan sang Solitaire, which was her new single at the time. And I remember just being absolutely glued to the TV while listening to the power of her voice. Solitaire was side one, track one on that mixtape. There was no question. Watching Brian Adams then perform Straight from the Heart was interesting because he looked really young in a white t-shirt, jeans, and tennis shoes, but he sang with a maturity that really captured the essence and sincerity of the song. What I loved about watching musicians and singers performing on shows like American Bandstand was that it let them be vulnerable and really raw with their music versus the larger-than-life images that were created in their music videos where the song sometimes got lost with whatever else was going on. There's nobody that sounds like Brian Adams with his distinctively raspy vocals that are both romantic and reassuring, whether he's reminiscing about the best days of his life or navigating matters of the heart. The song Straight from the Heart is a power ballad that showcases his vocals as he earnestly attempts to convince a former lover to give him another chance. I'm sold the moment that he opens his mouth and sings, I could start dreaming, but it never ends. As long as you're gone, we may as well pretend I've been dreaming straight from the heart. There's a genuine sincerity in his voice that makes me think the guy in the song can't be all bad. Come on, girl, give him another shot. I also love that sing-along chorus where he pleads to her without appearing pitiful to Give it to me straight from the heart. Tell me we can make another start. You know I'll never go as long as I know it's coming straight from the heart. The album Cuts Like a Knife was my first Brian Adams album, and it started a lifelong appreciation for his music, for his songwriting, and his sheer enthusiasm for performing. When I was nine years old, I played the album constantly and loved hearing the songs I'm Ready, This Time, The Best Was Yet to Come, and the title track, along with Straight From the Heart. I also remember thinking at the time that his songs and sound couldn't possibly get any better. Again, I was only nine, but I'd be blown away about a year later when the album Reckless came out. That changed everything for him, but it didn't change who he was or his sheer enthusiasm to write and record many of the most amazing songs that soundtracked my youth. I remember sitting at home as a kid watching American Bandstand that day and seeing the teenage girls in the audience swooning as he emoted effectively at the camera while crooning the lyrics to Straight From The Heart. I'll admit it, I may have also found myself swooning while sitting on our couch as well. As Straight From The Heart by Brian Adams ends, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the next track. Track 4 was released in September of 1988 and peaked at number 4 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Rod Stewart, and the song is My Heart Can't Tell You No. When MTV launched in 1981, it succeeded at exposing a wide variety of singers and bands and different musical acts to its viewing audience by showing music videos 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It was during those early years that I first became familiar with British pop rock artist Rod Stewart when I saw his videos for songs Young Turks, Tonight I'm Yours, and Baby Jane, which the channel aired repeatedly. Though I liked his songs and thought his voice was unique, especially compared to other male singers I was hearing around the time, it never really prompted me to delve deeper into his music. 
I did have some of the 45s to his singles like Infatuation and Some Guys Have All the Luck, but remember declining a copy of the album Camouflage when my father offered it to me, which was unusual because it was rare for me to refuse free records. Despite being aware of Rod Stewart's extensive catalog of music, including his work with the Jeff Beck Group and the band Faces, not to mention his successful solo recording career during the 1970s, I never really had any interest in exploring him as a musician or as an artist. That would change, though, in 1988 when I heard the song Lost in You and saw its video on VH1. There was something about the song's rock energy paired with his distinct vocals that really appealed to me and it piqued my interest in him as an artist. I remember being in the shop helping my father stock shelves and we got to talking about the song when he offered me a copy of the album Out of Order that it was featured on. This time, I accepted it. I had just turned 15 when the album came out, and maybe being in my teens had something to do with it, but I really identified with the driving rock sounds and the raw energy that Rod Stewart displayed, especially on songs like Crazy About Her, The Wild Horse, and Dynamite. I also wasn't prepared the first time that I heard the back-to-back one-two punch of songs Forever Young and My Heart Can't Tell You No that closed out Side A with the former being an optimistic mid-tempo song and the latter a sorrowful ballad. The album saw four singles released and was favorably reviewed by critics, with many calling it a return to form for Rod Stewart after several of his previous releases during the 80s failed to generate much sales or success. Of the singles released, Only My Heart Can't Tell You No managed to make it into the top five on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 singles chart. It peaked at number four, and I can really remember hearing it played everywhere at the time. It was on the radio, it was played in the mall, it was played on TV, it was at school dances. Everywhere you went, there was Rod Stewart emoting and heartbroken as he sang the song. I really wasn't surprised though at its appeal because it fit right in at the time with other heartfelt and heartbreaking ballads that were popular, like Lost in Your Eyes by Debbie Gibson, The Living Years by Mike and the Mechanics, and Eternal Flame by The Bangles. My Heart Can't Tell You No is sung from the perspective of a man who's well aware that the woman he's romantically interested in will never fully commit herself to him because she's involved and in love with another man. The song beautifully captures the struggle that many people have experienced or will at some point of being torn between what they know in their heads and what they feel in their hearts. Finding the courage to walk away and move on from someone that has a strong pull or a powerful influence on our heartstrings is a sentiment that's sometimes easier said than done. There's a real aching vulnerability that I hear in Rod Stewart's voice, and it conveys his weary desperation when he sings the lyrics, I don't want you to come round here no more. I beg you for mercy. You don't know how strong my weakness is or how much it hurts me. Because when you say it's over with him, I want to believe it's true. So I let you in, knowing tomorrow I'm going to wake up missing you. Wake up missing you. You can really hear the anguished longing in his voice as he's faced with the reality of things, and though he knows he should tell her no, every fiber within him still says yes. The result is a sad stalemate, with her continually reaching out and him responding, knowing she'll never feel the way for him that he does for her. The song has excellent music production, which swells and stings with each verse, emphasizing the pain that he's in. However, despite his instincts and his conscience urging him otherwise, he still remains hopelessly and helplessly devoted to her, especially when he sings the chorus. When the one you love's in love with someone else, don't you know it's torture? I mean, it's a living hell. 
No matter how I try to convince myself, this time I won't lose control, but one look in your blue eyes and suddenly my heart can't tell you no. This is such a heart-wrenching song, and it's extremely relatable to anyone who's selflessly opened their heart to another who was too selfish or self-absorbed to appreciate the meaning behind the gesture. I wasn't meant to experience the impact of Rod Stewart's music until the album Out of Order came along, and I'm really grateful that I gave it a chance because it encouraged me to then explore his catalog of music and listen to his unique storytelling through song. As My Heart Can't Tell You No by Rod Stewart fades out, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the last track for Side B. Our final track was released in April of 1984 and peaked at number six on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are Huey Lewis and the News, and the song is The Heart of Rock and Roll. If you were around in 1984, then you definitely remember how incredible the year was for entertainment. The movie theaters were packed with amazing films like Footloose, Ghostbusters, Purple Rain, Gremlins, and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, while Miami Vice, The Cosby Show, Who's the Boss, and V were all new to television screens. And the experience of rushing home to watch cartoons after school changed dramatically with the premieres of Voltron and Transformers. On top of all that, what I really recall most about the year was the abundance of incredible music available. 1984 was the time when people bought millions of albums and cassettes, pop musicians had larger-than-life personas, and nearly every musical genre was thriving. Music was welcoming any and everyone to revel in exploring their talent in singing, songwriting, and music production without borders or boundaries as to what could be done. The radio, the charts, and the music channels all reflected rockers, rebels, and rappers in unison creating new and original sounds and styles to further the future of music. The year was groundbreaking for so many memorable and successful albums that went on to define the decade, like Reckless by Brian Adams, 1984 by Van Halen, Heartbeat City from The Cars, Chicago 17 by Chicago, Tina Turner's Private Dancer, Born in the USA by Springsteen, Like a Virgin by Madonna, and the soundtracks to Prince's Purple Rain, Beverly Hills Cop, and Footloose. It was also the year that saw debut albums released by The Smiths, Sade, Run DMC, Bon Jovi, and Red Hot Chili Peppers, along with the breakthrough of Wham's Make It Big. I remember for my 11th birthday in May, I received a brand new leather album holder case because I had nearly doubled my record collection with all of the new music that was available. And don't even get me started on all those amazing 45s that were out at the time as well. An album that wound up being a major milestone for successful sales, as well as responsible for skyrocketing its artists into worldwide acclaim, was the album Sports by Huey Lewis and the News. The album was only one of five to hold the number one spot on Billboard's 200 Top Albums chart during the whole of 1984. The year started off with Thriller by Michael Jackson continuing its domination from 1983, then was followed by the soundtrack to Footloose, next was Sports, then it was followed by Born in the USA from The Boss, and the rest of the year belonged to Prince's Purple Rain. What's interesting is that Sports wound up placing number two as the biggest selling album of 1984, right behind Michael Jackson's unstoppable juggernaut thriller. Even more interesting was that both of those albums were released in 1983. 
Huey Lewis and the News were initially signed to a three-album contract with record label Chrysalis and released their self-titled debut in 1980, which debuted at number 203. While the album was mostly met with favorable reviews, it failed to produce any hit singles. Two years later, the band released their second album, Picture This, which debuted inside of Billboard's Top 200 album chart at number 129. The album also saw some moderate success with songs Working For A Living and the single Do You Believe In Love, which became the band's first top 10 song. Even with a hit song and positive reception to their first album, their future with the record label wasn't so secure. They were advised by executives that if the final album of their original contract wasn't a hit, that they'd be dropped from the label. Upon its release in September of 1983, Sports debuted at number 113. Just take that in for a moment, knowing that eventually eight months later, the album would stealthily climb to the number one spot and then wind up to be the second biggest selling album of 1984. The album and the band sustained visibility through a series of popular singles released like Heart and Soul, I Want a New Drug, The Heart of Rock and Roll, and If This Is It, which all reached the top 10 and were massive hits on radio while their videos were played in heavy rotation on MTV. Sports is a solid album from start to finish, and it's one that you don't often hear about whenever significant albums released during the 80s are mentioned. It opens with a fade-in from the sound of a heartbeat before the opening guitar chords, drums, keyboards, and brass instruments begin to flesh out the supporting sounds of the song. The Heart of Rock and Roll. The song celebrates the notion that rock and roll music will never die because it will always live and live on in people's hearts. What I enjoy about the song the most are the harmonies in the background, as well as the powerful impact of a host of instruments that work together to create an enjoyable and enthusiastic sound. I love hearing the horns along with the harmonica and especially the unsung hero instrument of the decade, the saxophone. Huey Lewis is also a charismatic frontman and he enthusiastically shouts out several major US cities during the song where rock is alive and really thriving like New York, LA, DC, Tulsa, Seattle, Detroit, Austin, Cleveland, and my hometown, San Francisco. In 1980, Huey Lewis and the News scored a three-album contract with a major record label, and though the first album went nowhere, and the second one went somewhere, it was that third one, the one that dominated the airwaves, the music channels, and the charts that went everywhere. All together now. Did, 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 did they say the heart of rock and roll is still beating? And from what I've seen, I believe them. Now the old boy may be barely breathing, but the heart of rock and roll, heart of rock and roll is still beating. And we did it. We've completed our 28th podcast playlist mixtape. I'll press the stop button on the cassette player and eject our tape. To recap, we open side B with Everything Your Heart Desires by Daryl Hall and John Oates, followed by Fortress Around Your Heart by Sting. Next was Straight From The Heart by Brian Adams. Then My Heart Can't Tell You No by Rod Stewart. And we ended side B with The Heart of Rock and Roll by Huey Lewis and the News. I've labeled our tape I Heart The 80s on both sides and put it into our cassette tape holder for completion. I hope with all my heart that the songs and artists featured in this week's playlist have succeeded at filling your heart with joy and love. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please take a moment to hit subscribe, like, or follow. I'd also greatly appreciate a five-star rating or review on whichever podcast platform you listen on. 
Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit lonely and you're never coming round. Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit tired of listening to the sound of my tears. Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit nervous that the best of all the years have gone by. Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit terrified and then I see the look in your eyes. As always, I hope that you've enjoyed this experience as much as I have bringing it to you and that you'll continue to listen and support Jimmy's extraordinary 80s playlist as we celebrate the music and the memories of the greatest decade to live in and live through, the 1980s.